Well, if you would, take your copies of the scripture and turn in them to John chapter 7. If you're visiting with us, I'm preaching through the gospel of John right now. And we've come to this seventh chapter, and we're going to slow down and zoom in a little bit today upon uh, just a small set of verses, verses 37 through 39, which are sort of the great climax of this passage. And so let's read these verses together, and then... We will look at them more closely. Chapter 7, verse 37 of the Gospel, according to John. This is the word of the Lord. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Amen. That's the reading of God's word. God has created us with a physical desire for water, which is intended to point us to our body's need for water to have physical life. And we call this desire a thirst of the body. But he has also created us with a spiritual desire for him that is intended to point us to our soul's need for him to sustain our spiritual Life. And we might call this desire a thirst of the soul. How would you describe this thirst of the soul? Well, it might be described as a deep longing in our soul for something that will provide us with what is ultimate, ultimate meaning and purpose in life, with ultimate and eternal joy and delight with a transcendent wonder and awe. You might describe it as the innate impulse to worship, which is inherent and universal in human beings. Tragically, in our fallen condition, mankind attempts to quench the thirst of his soul, with created things rather than the creator himself. Paul says this in Romans one twenty five that man exchanges the truth about God for a lie and worships and serves the creature rather than the creator. The Bible calls this idolatry. And that leaves the soul perpetually thirsty. Because created things, being temporary and limited, simply cannot give us the ultimate things that God created us to receive only from him. As God himself put it in Jeremiah 2.13, he said to Israel, They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out for themselves Cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water, referring to their idols. 
But even if a person does recognize that only God can quench the thirst of their souls, there still is a question. How do you get it from him? And that's what our text this morning is about. John 7, 37 through 39 reveals how fallen human beings can have their soul's thirst quenched by God. But before we look at these three verses, I want to remind you of some of the things that have been happening in the storyline of John's gospel leading up to these verses. We are in a section of the book which started back in chapter 5 and runs through chapter 10, which, as I said before, has often been called the festival cycle because it records events that took place around four Jewish festivals. And these events are marked by increasing hostility between Jesus and the Jews. In other words, every time he went up to Jerusalem to celebrate one of these festivals in this section of the book, Jesus clashed with the Jewish leaders and their hostility toward him grew. Now the first festival cycle, as it were, happened back in chapter 5 and There Jesus had gone up to Jerusalem for a feast. The feast is not named. And the Jews began to try to put him to death at that point because he had healed a man on the Sabbath day, contrary to their Sabbath rules. And then he justified it by claiming to be the unique son of God who was equal with God the Father. So starting there, the Jewish leaders are trying to put Jesus to death. The third of the festival cycles in this section happens here in our chapter, chapter 7. And Jesus to this point had been avoiding going back up to Jerusalem because he knew that the Jews there wanted to kill him. But when the time came to celebrate the Feast of Booths, he did go up to Jerusalem finally, but he did so in private, you remember, And he sort of kept a low profile for the first part of the feast. But then, in verse 14, we see, quote, About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. Now, as you can imagine, controversy ensued among the crowds who were there to celebrate the feast. Some, we saw, believed in him that he must be the Christ because of the signs he was performing. Others waffled in uncertainty, but the Jewish leaders were hardened in unbelief, and they, we saw, sent temple guards to try and arrest Jesus. Now, mysteriously, to this point, they were unable to do that. We're not told why yet. We just know God didn't allow it to happen. So Jesus continues in the temple interacting with the crowds, participating in the celebration of the Feast of Booths, such that John could tell us now, here in verse 37, that on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out to the people once again. Now his words on this occasion are recorded in our text, verses 37 through 38, and they are the last words of Jesus in this chapter. But before we are going to be able to fully grasp the significance of these words that he speaks on this occasion, at this feast, 
I think it will greatly help us to learn a little bit more about the Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles and how it would have been celebrated on these seven days of the feast leading up to the great day when Jesus spoke these words. Now, the Feast of Booths, often simply called shorthand tabernacles, tabernacle just another word for tent, it was one of the three major Jewish feasts for which Jewish men were required to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem every year. Tabernacles, in Hebrew it's Sukkoth, it was a particularly joyful occasion. It was Many say the most popular of the three major feasts for people to attend. The details of how the feast was to be celebrated, you can find in your Old Testament in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 33 through 34. And if you look at those details, you'll see that this feast was to begin on the 15th day of the seventh month of the Jewish calendar, which for us would be the middle of October. Now, technically, the feast itself lasted seven days. It began on a Saturday, on a Sabbath, and it would run through a Friday. But Leviticus tells us that the following Saturday, the Sabbath at the end, was also to be celebrated by those there at the feast as a solemn day of worship, so that it was really an eight-day occasion, beginning and ending with a Sabbath with six days in between. Now, the Feast of Booths corresponded with uh, the harvest of certain crops. There were multiple harvest times, depending on the different crop. So it was a harvest occasion. And so it was an occasion in which, in Leviticus 23, you see that people were to bring a portion of their harvest as food offerings. And they would offer food offerings and other kinds of offerings on each of the days of the feast in the temple, and it would to be a time of thanksgiving and joy, joyful celebration before the Lord. But of course, the reason it's called the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, you might say the Feast of Tents, if you wanted to use different lingo, was because the pilgrims gathering at Jerusalem were required in the Old Testament law and in the instructions they gave regarding this feast to live in booths, to live in temporary dwellings throughout the week to commemorate the time when Israel had lived in booths, in tents, in temporary dwellings as they traveled through the wilderness after the Lord delivered them out of slavery in Egypt in the days of Moses. Now, over time, more elaborate rituals were added to the simple instructions for the feast given in Leviticus 23. And one of these rituals has been of particular interest to students of John's gospel over the years because of the way it may very well explain why Jesus said what he did here on the great day of the feast in verses 37 to 38 of our passage. Some have actually called the Feast of Booths A feast of water and light. And that's in part because of a solemn but very joyous ritual or ceremony that was eventually incorporated into the celebration of this feast. D.A. Carson offers a description of the ritual. He says this, 
On the seven days of the feast, in other words, every single day of the feast, a golden flagon was filled with water from the pool of Siloam and was carried in a procession led by the high priest back to the temple. As the procession approached the water gate on the south side of the inner court, three blasts from the shofar, a trumpet connected with joyful occasions, was sounded. While the pilgrims watched, the priest processed around the altar with the flagon, the temple choir singing the Hallel, which was essentially songs that recited Psalms 113 through 118, which all had this repeated chorus of hallelujah, praise the Lord. And when the choir reached Psalm 118, every male pilgrim shook a lulab, a willow and myrtle twigs tied with a palm in his right hand, while his left hand raised a piece of citrus fruit, a sign of the ingathered hargus, and all cried, give thanks to the Lord, three times. The water was then offered to God at the time of the morning sacrifice, along with the drink offering of wine. The wine and the water were poured into their respective silver bowls and then poured out before the Lord. And again, that happened every day of the feast. Another commentator adds this, that the seventh day of the festival, the last day proper, was marked by a special water pouring rite and light ceremony. And this was followed by a sacred assembly on the eighth day, which was set apart for sacrifices and the joyful dismantling of the booths and the repeated singing of the Hallel. Now, when you read the Jewish writings from this period, you can see that this daily water ritual was often associated with the Lord's provision of water for Israel in the desert on the day, in the days of Moses. And that would make sense, right? Because the whole feast is commemorating uh, Israel's nomadic journey in camping in tents after, in the wilderness after the Lord delivered them out of Israel. And so many Jews saw the water rite as celebrating God's provision of water for Israel from the rock as they traveled through the wilderness. But it's also clear from those same Jewish writings that the water rites had a future focus as well. That even as they looked back to the Lord's provision of water in the wilderness to their ancestors, the daily pouring out of water before the Lord at the Feast of Booths also looked forward to the day when the Lord would pour out his spirit upon Israel in the last days when the Messiah finally arrived. Now, you might say, well, that's all well and good, but that's not part of the inspired instructions. Is there anything to this anticipation, the Lord outpouring of his spirit in the last days that they were celebrating in these water rites in the Feast of Booths? Well, Yes, indeed, there was. And to grasp the significance of that, we have to reflect a little closer on what the prophet said about the outpouring of the Spirit in the last days. Anyone who reads through the Old Testament knows that what it does is it describes the failure of God's old covenant people. God had redeemed the nation of Israel out of Egypt, uh, they had, he'd entered into a covenant with them at Mount Sinai. 
And he brought them into the land of Canaan where he lived with them in the tabernacle and then in the temple. However, from the beginning, Israel had proved to be an unfaithful bride, unfaithful covenant partner to the Lord. And so generation after generation, the nation violated their covenant with God through this persistent and escalating idolatry and immorality until finally God expelled them from the land and sent them away into exile at the hands of the Babylonians. But even as that tragedy was unfolding in the history of the nation, he was also sending them prophets who were foretelling a future day on the other side of that coming destruction when he would bring about a climactic redemption for Israel, which would encompass not just Israel, but the nations of the world and even the creation itself. He would rescue a remnant of Israelites out of exile. He would enter into a new covenant with them. He would bring them into a renewed land of Israel where they would worship God with new hearts in a new temple, in a new Jerusalem, under a new Davidic king. He would also bring a remnant of Gentiles from every nation to join with them in these things while destroying the rest of the nation, their enemies in judgment, so that the kingdom of the Messiah would extend over all the earth. And since the Messiah would somehow be both God and man, Isaiah 9 said, you remember, his righteous reign would never end. And he would bring peace to the earth forever, which itself, Isaiah 65 and 66, would finally be freed from the curse and made new. You remember that line in Isaiah? Behold, I am making all things new. See, the prophets were predicting a glorious renewal of all that had been corrupted by the fall. Beginning with a remnant of humanity and extending to the entire created order. And how would the Lord bring about this renewal of all things in the last days through the Messiah when he arrives? It would be through the outpouring of his spirit. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Godhead. Who is described throughout the Old Testament as renewing and giving life. Let me give you some examples. In the great redemption oracles of the prophet Isaiah. The Lord made Promises such as this in Isaiah 32, 14 through 18. The palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted, the hill and the watchtower will become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks, until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high. And the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness abide in the fruitful field and the effect of righteousness will be peace and the result of righteousness, 
quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings and in quiet resting places. And again, in Isaiah 44, verses 1 through 4, we read this glorious promise about the redemption that was coming in the last days. He said, But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb, and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessings on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. So also, the prophet Ezekiel foretold the same event in Ezekiel 39, 25-29. He said this, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel. And I will be jealous for my holy name. They shall forget their shame and all the treachery they have practiced against me when they dwell securely in their land with none of them, none to make them afraid. When I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them from their enemies' lands and through them have vindicated my holiness in the sight of many nations, then they shall know that I am the Lord their God because I sent them into exile among the nations and then assembled them into their own land. I will leave none of them remaining among the nations anymore, and I will not hide my face anymore from them when I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. The Lord also spoke of that day when he said this through the prophet Zechariah in chapter 12, verse 10 of his oracles. He said, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And then in verse 13, verse 1, On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And of course, I've saved for last the one that you all know. The marvelous prophecy of Joel, which basically says the same thing. Joel 2, 28-29, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my Spirit. And then in verse 32, It shall come to pass that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. When the Messiah arrived in the last days to bring about God's ultimate redemption, it would be accomplished through the outpouring of the Spirit, like a river of living water which brings cleansing and renewal to Israel and to the nations and to the earth. This is why. The redemption oracles of the prophets so often used, spoke of the coming salvation using the imagery of water and its life-giving effects in places where there had been dryness and death. So for instance, Isaiah 58, 11, it said of that coming day, and the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places 
and make your bones strong, and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Reminds you of Eden, a garden with rivers flowing through it. Or later on in Joel's oracles, Joel 3.18, And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water, water the valley of Shittim. This kind of talk pointed implicitly to the work of the Spirit of God, who would be poured out from on high, upon the people of God in the latter days. Indeed, when one of the last prophets of the Old Covenant, the prophet Zechariah, described the New Jerusalem, the city of God, where God would once again dwell with his new covenant people in the last days. Do you remember that he said in chapter 14, verse 8, that living waters would flow out from it to the east much like the rivers once flowed out of the Garden of Eden to the east in the beginning of time before the fall. And it was this prophetic hope which the Jews anticipated at their, as they poured out water every day of the Feast of Booths, singing the Hallel, praise to the Lord, and on that great and final day had a climactic water-pouring ceremony. And all of this, I think, provides the background to the event recorded in our text, John 7, 37-39, to which we now finally come back. So we read in verses 37-38, through it says, On the last day of the feast, the great day. So when the last and greatest of the water-pouring rites was carried out by the priests in the temple to the sounds of the hallelujah, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So here we see Jesus appeal to his old covenant people, the Jews, And call them to come to him to receive the living water which alone could satisfy the thirst of their soul. Now once again, just to pause for a moment, we are just struck by the audacity of Jesus. You remember Jeremiah 2.13 in the Old Testament, it was God who described himself as the fountain of living waters, whom Israel had forsaken For broken cisterns. In Isaiah chapter 55 verse 1, which is probably being echoed by Jesus here, it was God, Yahweh, who called to Israel through the prophet saying, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and you labor for that which does not satisfy? Incline your ear and come to me that you, your soul, may live. God said that. And yet here, the man, Jesus of Nazareth, called the nation of Israel to come to him to receive living water, speaking as if he was their God. And of course, that's exactly the point, isn't it? 
which John had made clear in the opening lines of the book and will continue to emphasize again and again throughout the book. But notice also what Jesus specifically offered to do for those who came to him to satisfy their thirst. Look again at verse 38. As the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. In other words, he would put a perpetual source of living water within them. Their hearts would become like a headwater of a life-giving river so that their souls would never thirst again. It was very similar to what he had told that Samaritan woman at Jacob's well back in chapter 4, verse 14. Remember, he had said to her, Whoever drinks of this water, of the water that I will give him, will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. But how could Jesus do this? How could he give people a perpetual source of living water inside them which would quench their soul's thirst forever and give them eternal life? What could he possibly be talking about? First with the woman at the well back in 414 and now with these crowds in Jerusalem. Well, fortunately... John actually goes on to tell us this time in verse 39, something he hadn't done back in chapter 4. He said, verse 39, Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now listen, any Christian reader familiar with the New Testament at all knows exactly what John What's talking about here? He's referring to the outpouring of the Spirit upon the church as the new covenant people of God by the glorified, the risen and ascended Christ beginning on the day of Pentecost, like we read about in Acts 2, right? Peter had explained what was happening there in Acts 2, 20, 33. He said, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, Jesus, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So, after the risen Jesus ascended to the right hand of God in heaven to take his seat as the Messianic King, he poured out the person of the Holy Spirit upon and into his people so that Romans 8 says that the Spirit of God indwells us as it had the temple in times past. That the Spirit of God, that we have become a temple, a dwelling place of God, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, the New Testament goes on to say, cleanses us from our sin, renews and sanctifies our hearts seals us as God's own possession until Jesus returns to raise us from the dead at the end of the age. But I want you to recognize that verse I read from Acts 2, Peter, he described the promise, the promise of the Holy Spirit. In other words, this was something that had been promised before. In other words, the outpouring of the Spirit upon the church by the Messiah, Jesus, after his resurrection and ascension was 
the fulfillment of a prior promise. And what was that promise? Well, in his sermon, Peter explained what the promise was. It was the fulfillment of the promise contained in the oracle of Joel 2, 28-32, which we read earlier. I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh in those days. And as I pointed out, that oracle was just one of many oracles in the Old Testament, which had likewise promised and predicted the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the believing remnant of God's people in the last day as part of their ultimate redemption by the Messiah. Now what all this means then, is that when Jesus stood up in the temple and he cried out in verse 38, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. See, he's not only claiming to be the divine son of God who can give living water to his people, but also he's claiming to be the Messiah who had come to pour out the Holy Spirit into the hearts of a believing remnant of his people, to cleanse and renew them as part of the restoration of all things that was foretold by all the ancient prophets of Israel. That's why he said, as the scripture has said, out of his hearts will flow rivers of living water. You know, there is no Old Testament text that says that. So what does he mean? as the scripture has said. Well, it's not just that there's one text. He's referring to a whole batch of Old Testament texts that are summarized by out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Isaiah and Joel and Zechariah and Ezekiel. And the reason he stood up and said this on the last day of the feast, the great day, was probably because the final water pouring ceremony which took place on that day was actually meant to anticipate that prophetic hope. He's saying, I've come to give you what you're hoping for. Amen. (laughs) Now, of course, by the time John wrote this gospel, it had become clear That when Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me. It's clear that Jesus was offering this living water promised in the Old Testament. Yes, to the Jews first, but also to the Gentiles. To literally whoever would believe in him without distinction. And All that they had to do to receive the living water, this gift of living water from Jesus, is simply to come to him and drink. That is the parallel to believe in him, to believe in him as the Messiah, to rely upon him, trust in him, to do what he said, to give them the Holy Spirit who would cleanse and renew their hearts. They didn't have to do anything to earn it. Indeed, they couldn't do anything to earn it and it would be insulting to try because Jesus was going to go on from here and do everything necessary to secure it by dying for their sins and rising for their new life. They just needed to trust in him 
to wash them clean from the guilt of their sin, to sanctify their hearts, to put his spirit within them as a free gift of grace. And these profound and glorious words of Jesus have not just been lost to history, like many of the other things he said, but they've been written down. And they still speak to us today from the page of this text. Maybe you've come here today and you're not a Christian. Maybe you're here because you're a child or a spouse of a Christian, but you yourself are not. Or maybe you're here because a Christian asked you to come today. If so, then you know what Jesus means when he says, if anyone thirsts. Because your own soul thirsts. And the reason for this, I am telling you, is because God has made you in his image. Originally to enjoy fellowship with him. But you've been estranged from him. You've gone astray like a sheep. You've been living for yourself, living apart from him. And this is wrong because you're his creature. You have a longing in your soul for something ultimate. But instead of finding satisfaction in your creator, you've been trying to find satisfaction in the things of this world, which your creator has made. Maybe it's entertainment and pleasure or Knowledge and accomplishments or friends and family, etc. But not only is this futile, it's also idolatry. It's rooted in unbelief and it has alienated you from God. It's left you guilty before God. And if you continue down this path, the scripture warns you'll end up in hell, which is the place of weeping and gnashing in teeth, Jesus said. Because it's a place of eternal darkness and separation from the joy and the blessing of communion with God, your creator. But here in John 7, 37-39, we see that God the Father has had compassion on his fallen creatures like you and me. He sent his eternal divine son as a glorious ambassador into the world to take on human flesh, to become one of us. This is Jesus to save us from the consequences of our sin, to bring us back to himself, to reconcile us to him. You know the gospel story in the scriptures is this, that Jesus is God come in the flesh to save guilty sinners like you and me who will believe in him, to save us from the penalty of death that we deserve for our sins, to give us eternal life with him. He's purchased Those who believe in him, the promise of the Holy Spirit through his death and resurrection. And now he says to sinners everywhere whose souls are dying of thirst, perhaps you in this room, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And so if you're not a Christian here this morning, I would say, Come to Jesus this morning. He's still alive. He's risen from the dead. The only difference is he's not walking around here on earth. He's seated at the right hand of God in heaven. But he hears and he calls still. Trust him to do what he's promised in these verses. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
who washes us clean with the blood of Christ, who makes us new on the inside and brings us into eternal communion with the living God, who alone will be able to satisfy the thirst of your soul for ultimate meaning and purpose, for eternal joy and delight, for transcendent wonder and awe. And Christian, you who have already believed in Jesus Christ and have already received from him the Holy Spirit, I would suggest to you that these words of Jesus in John 7, 37-39 are not irrelevant to you. Because it is possible for you and for me to become dry and barren in our souls. Sometimes it's because we've been living in the far country for a while. Indulging the desires of our flesh without repentance. Sometimes it's because we've responded to a great trial in our life by harboring anger and resentment toward God and it's disrupted our communion with Him. It could be that you're in a place where you're struggling with doubt and unbelief as a result of some intellectual challenge that you're working through. Maybe it's just because the worries and cares of life have left you distracted and you haven't been communing with God. You haven't been speaking to Him in prayer or listening to Him by reading the Scriptures or gathering with His people. Whatever the case, you can easily find yourself, myself, in a place where we're spiritually barren and thirsty. Maybe that's where you are this morning. If it is, then the words of Jesus here in John 7, 37 through 38, they're for you as well. He's reminding you who he is for you. He's calling you through the scripture page this morning. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. You must simply remember that he and nothing else in this universe can give you the living water that will quench the thirst of your souls. It's his spirit whom he sent to dwell within us who is the river of living water that's able to revive and renew your barren heart. And so the call is come back to him. Draw near to him afresh this morning. Drink again this morning. If you've been living in sin, repent. Do what's necessary to remove that hindrance from your life. If you become bitter in trial, humble yourself. Ask him for forgiveness and to Unlock your heart from its bitterness. If you've been struggling with doubt and with unbelief, acknowledge your weakness to Him. Come to Him. Cry out to Him. Saying, help, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. If you've been neglecting your relationship with Him, well then, sober up. Recognize your peril. Begin diligently seeking His face once again. Through all these glorious means that he's provided, he's put his word into your hand. It's living and active. He's called you, invited you to come before his throne of grace and prayer. He's provided you with a local church to fellowship with. Whatever it takes, come to Jesus as your only source of living water. Don't go to the empty cisterns of the world, which can hold no water. He alone gives you living water to satisfy your soul. He is the good shepherd. He is a kind elder brother. He is a loving bridegroom to you. He will draw near to you if you draw near to him. He will gladly give you what you ask when you come to him for drink. 
even if it takes some time and struggle before you really sense his reviving work in your heart, don't give up. Keep bringing your thirsty heart to Christ, asking him to satisfy you with his living water, trusting he will do so in his way, in his time. Because there's nowhere else to go, by the way. And no matter how difficult our journey through this life may be, brothers and sisters, however many deserts we have to traverse along the way of our life, let us also always remember, as Paul says in Philippians 3, we are citizens of heaven, citizens of the new Jerusalem. And one day we will pass through those gates. And in that city, The vision of Revelation 21 and 22 tells us the river of the water of life flows from the throne of God through the middle of the street of the city, lined on either side by the tree of life, whose leaves are for the healing of the nations. And there we will drink from the water of life to our heart content world without end. Because we will all dwell there in unhindered, full communion with God, worshiping Him with perfect joy and holy fear forever. Now may that truth fill your hearts right now in the desert with hope and spur you on to glory. God has created our souls to thirst for Him. This morning, we've seen that only through his son, Jesus Christ, can that thirst be quenched with the living water of the Holy Spirit. And he invites us to come to him and drink.